Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's pretty easy to come up here and talk when I've been singing in front of all of you. So if I can sing in front of you, I can talk to you as well. Um, it's great to be here and to share God's word with you. This morning is all the more special to me because it was actually in this building about 12 years ago that I first heard the good news about Jesus Christ. Uh, I was helping volunteer at a vacation Bible school when this used to be North Ridgeville Baptist Church. And our very own Mike Batonic might be in here. He's out there. Mike Batonic was sharing the gospel with my group of five-year-olds that Caitlin and I were chaperoning. And we were on the floor listening to him uh, talk about the gospel. And I was supposed to be watching the kids, but in fact, I might have been the only person listening. <laughs> the kids were playing amongst themselves. Uh, God opened my heart to the truth about Jesus, and I've just never been the same. And that happened here on this property. So it's just so very cool to be here this morning to share the same truth. Before we begin, though, many of you know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And we do have four wonderful pastors here. Uh, they're pastors and they're elders. And I just really wanted to recognize them um, quickly. We have lead pastor Dan Graham. We have pastor Tom Slater, pastor Daryl Myers, and pastor Mike Hain. As we uh, round out the month, can we just give them a quick round of applause? So, and uh, I just have to say, if you did bring in any last minute pastor appreciation cards, uh, you can just take time to cross out Dan's name. You can put Cam Bailey on there and just uh, give it to me on the way out. I appreciate your Starbucks gift cards and whatever else you do, Dan. Uh, but in fact, I am, I'm not a pastor. But what I've learned as I prepared for this sermon is it is not easy to write a sermon. It takes some serious time and effort. I don't know how many hours it takes Dan to prepare his sermon every week. But I know it can definitely eat away at his free time. So I got to thinking, what does Dan do on the weeks when he doesn't preach? And where does all of his free time go? I was able to get my hands on Dan's schedule, and the results were pretty startling. But on weeks where he does preach, which, are, which is most weeks, I learned that he wakes up at 4 a.m., he spends hours in prayer and Bible study preparing for his sermon, he eats nothing but chicken, rice, and broccoli. It's really good. Uh, he runs a 5K every day. He, uh, he memorized Psalm 119. <laughs> and occasionally he temporarily morphs into John Piper. <laughs> but on weeks where he doesn't preach, uh, it's, it's quite a different lifestyle. He basically turns into a college student. He sleeps until noon every day. He puts the Bible away, and he watches The Chosen as his quiet time. So we've got to talk about that. Uh, he eats every sample at Costco, and then he comes back the same day and does it again. Which is like an unwritten rule of Costco. You can eat the samples, you just can't come back the same day. You've got to come back the next day. Pizza and mac and cheese become his diet. He puts away the broccoli. And then instead of John Piper, he morphs into a human couch potato. So that's his schedule. We really got to get you back up here next week. Yeah, this is not good for your health. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's my honor and pleasure to be here to share the good news about Jesus. And we have a beautiful passage to go over today. 
we get to read and learn about what is possibly the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. Martin Luther was quoted as saying that this very passage in Romans is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. But before we dive in, we do have to review how we got here to the end of chapter 3. Pastor Dan has spent the last five weeks walking us through the beginning of Romans where the Apostle Paul tells us that God is righteous and perfect, we're sinners and we're imperfect, and we can't restore that relationship with God by any human means. And what this really breaks down to is Paul wants us to know that the Jewish Old Testament, or really any works for that matter, they can't reconcile our position before God. We ended our service last week with this verse from Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so we know that following rules and leading a religious lifestyle, abiding by traditions and rituals, those things will never save us. God's intention for the Jewish law was to reveal to people the sinful and broken condition of their hearts. Some have described the law like a railroad. The law is like the railroad tracks, but the tracks have no ability to carry the train to where it needs to go. It only serves to point the train in the right direction and carry it safely there. The law is kind of like that. It's intended to reveal the depravity in our hearts and point us to God for rescue. The law could never transform a person's inner heart. It could only change their behavior on the outside. They appeared to be leading a godly lifestyle, but on the inside it was, it was different. Martin Luther King Jr. knew this well enough when he said, It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. And he was speaking in terms of the criminal law in the United States, but the truth remains that the law can only lead to behavior change, not heart change. And it's at that point in the letter to the Romans that we begin today. And Paul pulls no punches in pointing to Jesus as the solution. As we go, I'm going to give us four truth statements that are outlined in your bulletin if you're following along, and then I'll tie it together with a principle, application principle at the end. So we begin at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But what really is the righteousness of God? I had to do some research on this. A study of the Bible and of the script Hebrew and the Greek scriptures revealed that the terms righteousness and justice are actually a part of the same word group, and they can be really viewed as a single attribute of God. So, in a wide sense, God's righteousness means that he always does what is right, and he's the absolute measure of good. But in a narrow sense, God's righteousness can also mean rendering correct and appropriate judgment, and that's more closely aligned with what we would understand as justice. Therefore, God's righteousness and justice also demand that he dispense proper punishment and wrongdoing in his creation. I'm sorry, proper punishment for wrongdoing in his creation. In Ezekiel chapter 18, we learn that the soul who sins shall die. And God says in Exodus 34 that he will not clear the guilty. 
And so your first truth statement is this. God always does what is right, but he must also punish sin. So, with righteousness and justice properly defined, what is Paul saying in these verses? He's telling us that prior to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God's righteousness was revealed to us through the Torah, or the law, but really all of the Old Testament scripture. But now, righteousness is available to all through faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. But why do we need to believe in something to be righteous? Can't we just strive to live the best lives possible, help other people, and make the world a better place? That argument is addressed with a staggering declaration in verse 23. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's undeniable and quite unsettling to learn that all people everywhere for all time are sinners who cannot reach God on their own. And what is God's glory? Again, I had to research and define this, because if we fall short of it, we should know what it is. In the Bible, God's glory often refers to that dangerously bright light that surrounds God whenever he reveals himself. But in this case, it may better refer to God's honor and his reputation his renowned perfect character. So Paul is telling us that we have all sinned and we have all failed to meet that standard that God expected of us when he created us. That phrase, fall short, was really used in situations like archery, where the shooter would attempt to hit a target with his arrow, but he didn't put enough power behind his draw stroke and the arrow fell short of the mark. And that's much like us as we attempt to live good lives to meet a heavenly standard of God's holiness. I've also heard it described like a high jump competition where athletes are trying to vertically jump as high as possible. But we can imagine God watching from 30,000 feet in the air while the people below can only jump a few feet. We'll never be able to bridge that gap, that separation by our good works. And so your second truth point is this, there is no human way to solve our separation from God. There is no human way to solve our separation from God. Now, while that's obviously bad news, there is good news in verse 24. Although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by his grace as a gift did I mess the verses up? No, oh I got it. All people are, are fallen and sinful, and they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, again, what does justified mean and what does redemption mean? I felt like I just had to define these terms. J.D. Greer says that justification is not a process, but it's a pronouncement whereby we are declared righteous all at once. It's not a transformation of our hearts, and it's not infused into us, but it's credited to us. So it's a single, eternal, legal declaration by God that we are righteous in his sight, and he no longer looks upon us as guilty sinners. We do continue to sin after we're justified, of course, 
But God does not count our sins against us. And we are declared innocent. And redemption, redemption is the restoration or return of something through an exchange. So what Paul is saying in verse 24 is that although we are guilty, God pronounces us innocent by his grace, which is his undeserved favor and goodness. And that's a gift through our faith in the restoring work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a lot. Our redemption, though, could be better explained using the example of a grocery store coupon. Let's say Scott Schrumpf walks to his mailbox one morning and he finds a coupon for a free 10-pound brisket at Giant Eagle. He jumps for joy and he squeals like a little girl because if you know anything about Scott, he is a devoted carnivore. He jumps at his shiny white Mustang and he hightails it to the market district where he locates his delicious prize behind the counter. Now, although that brisket is actually $100 and involved the death of an animal, it will be free for Scott. <laughs> but the coupon in his hand is meaningless until he presents it and redeems his item. Now, that's obviously not a perfect analogy, but the truth remains that Jesus redeemed us. He restored us. He bought us back from the consequences of our sin, which we already learned is death, by not only dying for us, but instead of us. Justification is free to us, but it was costly to God. And that leads us into verse 25, talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now that term propitiation, it's the cause of great speculation and debate, but what it really means here is to satisfy the wrath of God against sin, or to turn away God's wrath, or to offer a sacrifice that appeases God's just judgment and his righteous anger against us and our sin. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And by switching places with us, God's wrath against sin was satisfied, and he became propitious towards us, or favorably disposed towards us. This is also sometimes referred to as the great exchange. Jesus took our place, satisfied the wrath of God that we deserved, and we in turn are looked upon by God as innocent of sin and its eternal consequences. This concept was rooted in the Jewish Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which is described in Leviticus 16. On that day, and only on that day, once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place. He would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed goat on the mercy seat, or the ark, the cover of the ark of the covenant. That procedure would in turn appease and satisfy God's wrath against Israel's sins. The high priest would then take a second goat, and confess the sins of Israel over it, and that goat would be released into the wilderness. That's what we call the scapegoat. And that was to symbolize the removal and the expulsion of the people's sins from the community. So just as in that process, Jesus, as our propitiator, ensured there could be forgiveness of sins, but he also paid the full price of God's wrath. Now, how do we obtain this gift? Well, the Apostle Paul simply tells us that it must be received by faith 
there in verse 25. And so here's your third truth point. Much like a Christmas gift or a birthday gift, God's gift of salvation isn't ours until we accept it. God's gift of salvation isn't ours until we accept it. And faith is the means by which we receive Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Now, our society has kind of warped the term faith into an end-all, be-all word that can use wherever and whenever. I'm not going to sing that song. You got to have... I'm not going to sing it. Don't ask me to. But you know what I'm talking about. We all say you got to have faith. we got to have faith about whatever we want. So here, the term trust might be more appropriate to consider. To trust in something means to lean into it, to cling to it, to rely upon it. We can think of it this way. My daughter loves to do trust falls with me. Basically, to play, you stand looking away from someone and you fall backwards completely dependent and believing that they will catch you. You rely on them. You trust that person to save you from injury. Kyle Drake in the sound booth is probably not going to trust his son, Caden, to catch him if he does a trust fall off the stage. Caden isn't strong enough. Sorry, Caden. You're not strong enough to absorb the impact of your father at this point in life. But Jesus is strong enough for us to fall into Jesus is strong enough to forgive us and to save us. To be forgiven and saved is to trust in Jesus' atoning death on our behalf, that he accomplished everything necessary to satisfy God's holy wrath deserved by us, and that he rose from the dead. We don't trust in a dead Savior. Amen? He's alive. Speaking of Jesus as our propitiation, verse 26 concludes... It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so even in verse 25, at the end, we saw that Paul was explaining all of this about Jesus was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, God's righteousness, at that time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What that means is, it could have been argued that God was not truly righteous and a God of justice if he just allowed the world to sin without penalty since the fall of Adam and Eve. Or you could even ask the question, why couldn't God just pull a Thanos and snap his fingers and forgive the entire world just like that? Why did he have to send his son to die? Tim Keller says this, Forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. To not retaliate is to absorb the cost. And so your fourth and final truth point is this, forgiveness always comes with a price. Forgiveness always comes with a price. We've seen this situation play out in America where a homicide occurs. It may so happen that the victim's family forgives the criminal who murdered their family member. Even though that family forgave the perpetrator, they still suffered loss, right? They lost their loved one. And really the victim lost their life. So even though forgiveness was extended, it came at an awful price. 
Similarly, Jesus as a propitiation showed God's righteousness. Because although God forgave us, someone still had to die. A price still had to be paid. And a loss still had to be suffered. As we said before, the soul who sins shall die. So Jesus stood in our place and took that penalty. And so God remained just, but he also became the justifier of anyone who trusts in Jesus. And so that's a lot of theology, but it's important to know. So let's review. God is righteous and we are sinners. Jesus died for us and instead of us. And through him, we can be saved. And through it all, God remains just. You guys tracking with me? Yes. Now, how does this core truth of Scripture impact us today? Of course it means that we can have fellowship with God and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that's honestly the best part. But how should it affect our hearts? Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul seems to go right into how this applied to the Roman church. He continues on as we finish, the pa- finish up the passage in verses 27 to 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by our faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Listen, what this means for all of us is this. We cannot take any credit for our salvation. We have no platform to boast about earning our position before God. Paul just spent pages explaining that there is nothing we can do of ourselves to rectify our situation. The main problem is pride. And what is pride? Well, if you ask Siri, like I did, she'll say that pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. Pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. This was clearly an issue in the Jewish community in Paul's time, and it's clearly an issue in the church today. But the concept of faith and of trusting in Jesus inherently rejects pride and the self-made man or woman. So let's ask ourselves this morning, do we walk around with a chip on our shoulders because we're saved? Have we forgotten that everything we have been given in this life is a gift from God? How do we think about other people? How do we see them? Do we judge others because of what they're wearing or what they're drinking, how they're acting, the color of their skin or their zip code where they live? Are we behaving pridefully or humbly in our social media posts or in our political discussions? Listen, we have no authority to eternally condemn the world for what they do. We are not the final judge. Just like we have no authority to earn our salvation before God. Let me bring it back to the scripture. Paul commands us in verse 31 that we must uphold the law. 
And what that means to me is without remembering the law and upholding it, we forget how broken we truly are. Remember my railroad example? The law is the railway that leads us right to Jesus. We need it in our lives to study it, to know it every day so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking we are self-made Christians. The Christian faith may be available for us, may be available for us, but it is not about us. It is all about God and what he accomplished on our behalf. And this should lead us all to an overwhelming sense of thankfulness. And so your last uh, point is this. Dismantle your pride by living with an attitude of gratitude. Dismantle your pride by living with an attitude of gratitude. The Jewish Christians in Rome thought the fact that they were circumcised entitled them to more abundant blessings than others. Today we need to remember that although we've accepted God's free gift of salvation, if you hear and you have accepted it, you're not intrinsically better than anyone else. Everything we've just read and reviewed should lead us straight to our knees in thanksgiving before God. Never let the lure of pride make you forget that. Paul writes in his first letter to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. But I would have to think that the love of ourselves is a close second to that. Isaac Watts knew this truth well enough when he wrote the first verse to his timeless hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. This morning, our only boast should be in the Lord and what he has done. Pride has no place in God's kingdom. So we are going to end with a hymn that I'm sure most of you know. It's called Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. And I want to put the, the lyrics on the screen here to explain something to you. Here's the first verse. Excessive works, how sweaty the sound that came from the God in me. I once was bad, but now I'm good, thanks to my sincerity. Those aren't the lyrics, sorry. Let's try again. Twas works that earned my place with God and deeds that made him smile. How long I toiled and proved my worth and trudged that second mile. Still not right. Maybe let's try it here. When we've been there 10,000 years being paid our hard-earned fun, we've no less days to sing our praise and boast of all we've done. Those are not the lyrics of Amazing Grace. Sometimes I feel like I sing songs like that, though. So we need to be careful that those are never the position. That's, that's never going to be the position of our hearts when we sing before God, when we praise and when we go throughout our days. We're going to end with the real words, Amazing Grace. And the great thing about grace is it's undeserved. It's a gift. So there's nothing to boast about except in the giver. By the way, I didn't write that. Um, Charles Swindoll wrote that. <laughs> I, I, needed to, I needed to end by saying that because that was pretty funny. Um,
to prove a point. <laughs> so we will end with Amazing Grace. Uh, would you just stand with me and Bill as we end our service today?